Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. This is Buddy Franklin. This is the greatest showman. Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Oh, who else? McDonald. This is episode 83 of Americans Watching the Footy, our round three preview. Benjamin Castle here alongside my brother Ethan in South San Francisco, California. We said we weren't going to do a two-hour recap again. We kind of did. Hopefully this preview doesn't go on for that long. I'm thinking this will be like a one-hour preview or maybe in the 50-minute range. This is just a rough estimate. This is going to be our new thing, like expectation versus reality. How long will this episode? And we're not going to try to, um, you know, stretch it out or anything. It's just going to happen because we're, we're honestly incentivized to be faster because audience retention and we have other things to do. Brian, do you agree with that? Brian just popped out from behind the window blinds. Come here. Let's see if he wants to be involved in the recording. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the best matchups of this round occur in overlaps on Saturday and Sunday. Now, the Thursday and Friday games are good for their own reasons, but I don't know. There's something that particularly draws me to, for example, the two late Saturday games. There are couple of games where, you know, you're surprised to see both teams come in with matching records, whether that's 2-0 and or 0-2. You know, we've got a couple of obvious rivalries this week with Showdown and the Western Derby, but we also have the Tasmanian Tussle, the Will the Bubble Burst Bowl, which I literally just made up, and the Why Do These Teams Play Each Other So Much, something or other, the Why Do They Double Up Again-a-thon? I don't know, we're... Are we trying to just come up with names for all nine of these matchups if they don't already have one? I mean, I don't know if you remember on one of the Mario Party games, like, the teams... Oh yeah, like, every team had a name. I forget if it was Mario Party 5 or 6. It was one of the GameCube ones. Aha, I think it was Mario Party 6. We grew up with number 7, so we didn't really know about that. Aha, yes, it was Mario Party 6. Oh, there was one where there was, like, awkward couple or something... Let's see, Wario and Toadette were secret friends. Um, Waluigi and Daisy, awkward date. Okay, I think that's the one I was thinking of. See if I can find any other funny ones here. Uh, Koopa Kid and Luigi, friendly enemies. They really went to the liberty of naming all of these teams in all these different languages. Seems like such unnecessary work for the localization teams. So what then would you name... The Bulldogs and the Lions, because they're the Thursday night matchup. Is it the Dunkley debacle? Something about how the Lions is also a type of cat, because, you know, you have the Cats-Dogs matchup to begin with. I feel like you gotta save that for Geelong, though. Yeah, so I'm, I don't know, let's see. Wario and Luigi are the unloving bros. Um, Toad and Wario are the mushroom stinkers. Waluigi and Yoshi are unhappy dino. This is just... Some of these make sense and some of them don't. D 
Daisy and Koopa Kid are grudging allies. You're really just going through all of these. No, I'm just going through the better ones. Yoshi and Toadette are racing champs, which implies they're really good at Mario Kart. I mean, Toadette debuted in Mario Kart Double Dash, didn't she? Ah, uh, Mario and Toadette are unexpected pair. Let's get a move on, though, shall we? And yeah, I think that's really a... That seems like a good amount to, to stop on. But yeah, Bulldogs and Lions, Marvel Stadium on Thursday, 7.20 p.m. local like normal, so that's 6.20 p.m. in Queensland because they're still on different time zones this week. The daylight time doesn't end for another few days. In the United States, it's that beautiful time for Easterners, 4.20 a.m., 1.20 a.m. here on the West Coast, and it'll be on Fox Sports 2. Now, if there was one team that we expected to come into this game at 1-1, one and one, it would have been the Bulldogs, right? Frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if both of these teams had come in at 1-1. One and one. I would have expected the Lions to be 2-0 and oh and the Bulldogs 1-1 one and one probably, but I could see how we could have gotten to both at 1-1. One and one. But the Bulldogs look pretty bad for almost all of last week's game against the Saints, really save for the second quarter, and they're 0-2 and, and for the second straight year find themselves in a pretty tough spot going into round three. Now, they played this round three Thursday nighter last year, and they won despite kicking 9-17. I don't think that's going to happen again. I also just think they're not going to win this game. I think they're about to be 0-3. The questions continue to mount as to whether or not Luke Beveridge actually knows the differences in the skill sets between the different talls that he has. More and more I see the Bulldogs play. The answer continues to lean toward no. I do also think this is a team with some weirdly assembled talls that maybe aren't in the proper spots necessarily. Sam Darcy doesn't look like he knows what his role is. He was subbed out last week. Get Rory Lobb back, as well as Adam Trelore. We do know that the Dogs will have a debutante in pick number 43 from 2021, Arthur Jones. He was selected with the pick the Dogs got for trading away Pat Lipinski. Not the Arthur Jones who won the Super Bowl. Unfortunately, no. Imagine just seeing how Arthur Jones, how big he is, playing footy. That would be fucking awesome. I mean, his family's got some pretty versatile athletes between him and Chandler, and then also their younger brother being John Bones Jones. Holy fuck, there are a lot of people named Arthur Jones with Wikipedia articles. And I don't believe the Western Bulldogs player is one of them. No, there's an Arthur Jones that played footy for Fitzroy in 1914 and then was killed in Turkey during World War I at Gallipoli. Oh, so he was, he was one of the fallen Anzacs then. He was a lest we forget. Yeah, and that's going to come up in a few rounds. There are multiple Australian Arthur Jones, but not this one. But let's see. Arthur Jones may refer to 26 different people that have Wikipedia articles. So he could be number 27 or eight. Maybe by the time he has an article, there's more. Maybe by the time he has an article, he'll be number 32, matching his jumper number. He will not be the best number 32. That's reserved for the namesake of our mascot. In the VFL, Mitch Hannon and Jason Johannesson showed well for the dogs. Should also note that friend of a friend of the show, Bugu Kamis, was an emergency against St. Kilda, and he's always a sub-candidate because of his versatility. For the Lions, Kadeen Coleman is supposed to be back this week. Coleman is confirmed in returning from the concussion he suffered in round one. He will be replacing Daniel Rich, who's got a quad injury. So surprisingly like for like there, there was talk that Coleman would have to replace someone like Darcy Ford or Dara Joyce. But 
Now the Lions can go in unchanged aside from Coleman coming in for Rich. In terms of matchup history, last year in round 16, the Lions won by 41 points at the Gabba, but the Dogs have won six straight home meetings. Thing is, this is their first meeting in Melbourne since round 8 of 2018. In the time since then, they've met twice in Ballarat and four times in Brisbane, including a semifinal in 2021, which the Bulldogs won by a single point. Yeah, they haven't played in Melbourne very often, but there have been a couple of Bulldogs home games. It's not like where we're waiting for the Lions to finally go play the Eagles on the road. Lions are favored by 13 and a half, going by the odds on Bovada. Not a sponsor. Wouldn't mind if they were a sponsor. It would be fitting considering how gambling happy seemingly everything in Australia is for us to have a gambling sponsor. I would personally push out my tip of this game to maybe two and a half times this. Usually you push the tip in instead of push it out. I'm sensing something like a 30-point margin here. If I'm being generous to the dogs, actually. I put this as a smaller margin than that. I put it at 16, but... Yeah, I think the Lions both win and cover. What would a Bulldogs win look like? It would look like top-tier performances in a lot of the midfield to be able to shut down all the connections there. You need a healthy Liam Jones and probably Aaron Naughton and Sam Darcy doing enough work to support Jones and Ed Richards there. I've said that Richards is probably going to be the steadiest marking presence as of now with Jones maybe still not at 100%. But those two can't do it alone, especially against as loaded a forward group that the Lions have. And then obviously just greater accuracy in front of goal for the Bulldogs. Basically, everything needs to go right. And I doubt that it will. I could definitely see Darcy playing more like he's been on a football field before because he just looked so lost and out of place last week. It was like he walked in and nobody told him, hey, do this. Sounds about right, Luke Beveridge. It seems like he's just kind of throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks at this point. I believe he started Jack McRae at full forward in the second half last round. As I said at the start, he needs to really tune in and differentiate the skill sets of the Talls in particular. Just crowding the forward line with Talls doesn't work. Collingwood from last year can tell you that from when they played these same Lions. And speaking of Collingwood, they are the home team for the Friday Nighter and... This should be a hell of a crowd against Richmond. Yeah, this will be on March 31st, 1.50 a.m. for us on the West Coast of the United States after the MLB opening day and night fun has subsided. 4.50 a.m. Eastern time and 7.50 p.m. local time. This will be an FS1 game, which I think this is a really good game to introduce to like a larger audience because there are more people that get Fox Sports 1 than get Fox Sports 2. The question is how many people are going to be up watching this close to 2 a.m. Pacific, 5 a.m. Eastern. I mean, I think the hope would be that some people on the East Coast, you know, wake up and see it, see the second half. Or maybe people like Craig just wake up early enough and see the whole thing. I remember talking with Craig Wessels from Yank on the footy about how most of the time he wakes up early before work to catch these weekday games when it's still the school year. When I've been on the Eastern time zone, that usually seems to be the better method, at least with those Thursday and Friday night games. Well, neither Collingwood nor Richmond have lost yet this season, I'll say that. Yeah, Collingwood 2-0, Richmond 1-0-1, of course. 
Richmond looked like they were losing the plot a bit in the third quarter against Adelaide, then ran away with it again in the fourth quarter. And the Tigers also won pretty convincingly last year when these teams met back in round eight. That was their only meeting, and their only meeting once this year as well. Round eight last year, it was a 27-point Tigers win. Yeah, I feel like, you know, these are considered part of the big four, right? I mean, I'm glad that there's flexibility in the schedule that not all of them double up every year because it means that you should ideally have some more diversity in double ups. But of course, it doesn't happen that way, as we'll talk about with one of these other matchups this round. Particularly weird this year that Richmond aren't doubly up against any of the other big four teams. They're done with Carlton, and Dreamtime is the only time they're playing Essendon. Yeah, that's the weirdest one to me. In fact, the only exclusive to the MCG, really, club they play against twice is Melbourne. You know, they've got the Saints and Bulldogs twice, but kind of an odd amalgamation there. But they're going to be really shorthanded this week, although I do trust in their depth. Yeah, the Tigers are required to make four changes for this round. Three of those are by injury. Jacob Hopper has a knee injury that we saw happen in the second half. Tim Martin's hamstring is enough to keep him out after being subbed out in the fourth quarter in Adelaide. And Jaden Short was expected to be out with a calf injury. Then we learned that Nathan Broad was suspended for four games for his dangerous tackle of Patrick Farnell. And that means he's going to be missing not just this one, but the rest of a pretty rough stretch for the Tigers. Let me just mention, I think four games is appropriate. It's just that causing Pickett's tackle also should have gotten four. Four is the same amount that Tom Stewart was suspended for last year. I wonder if Richmond fans are still butthurt about that. I guess we'll find out in a few weeks when the Cats and Tigers play. They, they probably are. They absolutely are. But aside from this game, Broad will also miss games against the Bulldogs, Swans, and Demons. Not ideal. So who could slot into the side? Well, there are a couple pretty obvious picks. Ryan Mansell did well as a sub last round, had an immediate impact kicking a goal that brought the margin back out to two kicks, and Richmond continued to build from there. I expect he'll be straight into the 22. And we heard Damian Hardwick say that Noah Cumberland is really behind Dustin Martin for one of the lineup spots. Well, no Dusty. Yes, Noah? Yeah, which is weird because... I thought of Cumberland as, you know, a pretty versatile player and having him wait in the wings behind one specific guy when he's kind of a well-rounded player seems just kind of strange to me. Jack Ross also put up good numbers in the VFL, so maybe he's in the conversation for a midfield spot. It's less clear as to who could replace Broad. Ben Miller is certainly not like for like, and he obviously does have some defensive ability, but nowhere near the speed. If you're looking for someone who has the speed and kicking ability of Broad, someone like Grand Final Sprint champion Hugo Ralph Smith might come to your mind. He's like for like, but is he such as for such as? I'm not sure what the Iraq for the Iraq would say about that. The Iraq everywhere like such as and... Not many changes expected for Collingwood considering that Jack Ginneman is going to be playing VFL this week. There are some concerns about Brody Majacek but he is expected to be available despite his dislocated finger. He is a guy who I think has totally outperformed like what the fantasy points suggest. You know, there are some guys like, especially the Frio defenders, who, you know, their actual value is nowhere near as good as their fantasy value. And then there are guys like Brody Majacek, 
who are on the opposite side of that. By the way, that's not to say that those Frio defenders are good. It's just they're not as good as the numbers make it look. Their numbers are inflated. It's tough for forwards to get points, but Mychek has done well in his one-on-one matchups. And when he isn't getting the ball, when he isn't marking, he's still doing well enough to kind of neutralize the defenders on him a lot of the time. And that allows some of the more ground-based guys like Bobby Hill to do better work. It's Hill having played so well that has prevented Ginevin from slotting right back in, I figure. Also, through the uh, Mason Cox show, they've talked about just how much, and this is not just Mason, but Braden as well. They talk about how much they enjoy watching Bobby play. I mean, he's just an entertaining player. Another guy who's really outperformed the fantasy value so far has been Darcy Cameron, who I think has been vital to everything Collingwood's done. Seemed pretty gutsy at the time to back him in with a contract extension in the middle of last season, but he seems to have exceeded what the Pies have expected of him at this point. He has grown into that first-rate ruck role and really helped set the tone against Port with his tackling as well. There are a lot of VFLers who have shown well for Collingwood, and we talked a lot about their depth on the young side last year. With the older additions they brought in with trades and free agency, there are even more of those pieces that are in the VFL for the time being, like Finn McRae, Trent Bianco, Ash Johnson. At this point, though, nothing is broken for Collingwood, so there's nothing to fix. Yeah, which is a great problem to have. You just got to make sure that if things do crack at some point, because, I mean, you wouldn't expect things to be super smooth sailing the entire season, as good as this team is. What you want is to not get things in that stagnant, stale spot that Melbourne was last year, like with the Weta Brown situation. The list pressure does need to be there. If somebody underperforms, they need to know that there are other players right behind them that could take their spot. Collingwood favored by 14 and a half, which even when Koo Richmond's missing, I think that's a little high. I will note the odds have not been updated since Dusty being out was announced, so... I imagine that could get pushed even a little further, maybe towards 16. I don't know. I think it's just hard to expect this game to not be close. I think we're in to get one of the two big night games to be really good and the other one to be a blowout. I I don't know if it's a blowout, but it's one where it's like, I'll have to... You're going to fall asleep because it gets out of hand, then you'll go back and watch the rest later. I don't know about that, but at least like struggle to stay away for the entire thing. I don't think we're going to be struggling to stay awake for the Tasmanian tussle. No, although that's one where it's just loose focus because it's early on Friday night. Um, Let's see. Looking at the schedule here, what other things could compete for my interest at that point? Well, probably some baseball because there are only a few games on Friday because a lot of teams take the day after opening day off as a weather precaution, but if the Dodgers to watch or the Guardians-Mariners game or the end of the White Sox-Astros game can cut in a little bit. So there are things. I'm interested because there's just something about this Tasmanian matchup that gets me. And also you have, obviously, the Hawthorne influence on North with Alistair Clarkson now coaching there and Liam Shields and Daniel Howe playing for North as well. And the Tasmanian fans tend to get really into things, so I hope they show out for this one. I'm not sure if they have as strong a reason to show because of the way the Hawks have started the season and how clearly this is going to be a struggle of a year for them, if not a struggle of a few years. Hopefully the North fans make the move over there, though. 
Yeah, I would be not super surprised if the North fans outnumbered the Hawthorne fans at this game, or at least made it close. Yeah. Let me check. How far is it between two stadiums? Hang on. It's about two and a half hours between Blundstone Arena and Utah Stadium. Hobart is on the southern end of Tasmania, and Launceston is not directly on the water, but pretty far north. For a country with, you know, that doesn't quite have the sort of freeway system that we have, this seems like a pretty easy and doable trip. This will be a 1.45 p.m. local bounce on Saturday, April 1st. So in the U.S., it'll be 10.45 p.m. Eastern, 7.45 p.m. Pacific on Friday, March 31st. This will be a Fox Soccer Plus telecast in addition to Watch AFL. Now, Hawthorne starting 0-2, we expected. North starting 2-0 is a different story. I'm not surprised that they have a win. I'm surprised they have two. And I'm surprised that Harry Sheasel was so important in both of those. I mean, I'm not surprised that he looks good. I'm surprised that he's doing it in a defensive role and that, well, he was told to stand there. I mean, that he's this smooth doesn't surprise me. Like, just from those few clips you watch through, you know, the uh, baseline footing page on Instagram, you can see very quickly. I mean, he's got very good vision. That was clear right away. But to be able to translate that skill set so well to defense is What's surprising, and then to have the instincts to soccer the ball away from the behind line to preserve the one-point lead at Optus this past week. Yeah, the great hands, great vision is a pretty special combination that most people in this game simply don't have. The Hawks and Roos played twice last year. They opened their seasons at the MCG, and Hawthorne won that meeting by 20. And then in round 19, they went to Blundstone Arena, and the Hawks won by 46. So... Of course, they are in Launceston this year, having been in Belrive last time. Yeah, it feels like these are teams that it makes sense for them to double up every year. And I feel like it's also going to make sense if slash when Tasmania gets their team for them to consistently double up against both of these teams as well. Chad Wingard, we'll see if he's available. He's calf injury. Could bring in Tyler Brockman at forward. You know, just embrace the youth movement even further. Brockman played in 11 games in 2021, but didn't make it into any last year. That was mostly because of injury. Soft tissue in the preseason needed his shoulder reconstructed as well. And with how the Hawks are going, there are a lot of names that they can and should consider from results at Box Hill, Denver Granger Barras, Ned Long, former Cat Cooper Stevens. Just get different guys in there, get different looks in there, see what works. It's what ought to be done in a rebuilding year. Should also note that Harry Morrison and Jack, and that's good, Scrimshaw are also working their way back from injuries. North will be without one of their co-captains because Jai Simpkin was suspended a game for striking Caleb Sarong. And because it was an off-ball incident, I don't think people realized that it had happened until Sunday night. Yeah, but then you you see the video and it's like, oh yeah, that that merits a suspension. We'll talk about what strikes merit a suspension when we go into one of the later games for one band that was erased for some reason, but Simpkin did not contest his. Will Phillips might be a chance for the 22 in Simpkin's place because of Simpkin being out, or maybe something opens up because Paul Curtis might still be sick. He was subbed out of the round two game with illness. He was still there in the circle after the game, so clearly not a major concern, I would say. 
In VFL action, Aaron Hall was his typical huge number getter in defense. Maybe this is his chance to make his first AFL appearance of the year, and I imagine, Ethan, that you would try to pick him up in fantasy if so. Yeah, he's just kind of a stat accumulator. I know calling him a stat patter is, you know, that has a negative connotation. I don't think he does it with the purpose of just making his own scoreline look good. I don't think he's doing, you know, like Russell Westbrook type shit. I think it's just naturally how he plays that he puts up the numbers he does even if they're not necessarily functional. You should also note that George Wardlaw made his first appearance in the VFL and played three quarters. Yeah, um, Sheasel's really high on his talent level, so I get the feeling Wardlaw's going to be a problem very quickly. People at North seem to be really high on this guy, and people from around the league seem to really like it. A problem like legitimate problem or sarcastic terrible nba stat line tweet this guy was a problem no like actually a problem for opponents okay the rematch between hawthorne and north by the way will be in round 18 at marvel stadium north favored by eight and a half which i think is a little low when i think about setting a line i think of like what are all the possible outcomes and what's in the middle of that i was thinking maybe toward 14 maybe but yeah but Hawthorne tend to play some of their best footy in Launceston, so maybe that factors into things. So I wouldn't be shocked if Hawthorne won this game. I'd be shocked if they won it comfortably. Like, if you're telling me this is going to be a 30-plus point margin, then I'd expect North to win it. Exactly. Why is GWS Carlton a standalone game? Better question, why the fuck are they doubling up for their third consecutive season? What's what's the connection here? Is it Zach Williams who isn't going to be playing, obviously? Is it that Steven Silvani was involved with GWS? Last year, when they played for the first time, it was kind of the middle of the three Sunday games. That one was notable because it was Leon Cameron's last game, and actually, that was the game in which Zach Williams got injured. Yeah, and that merited some attention just because of Cameron, who... What I really remember from that game is just him making an impression on me, like, as a person. I don't know how to evaluate him as a coach. Considering he was a GWS for so long, it's hard to really compare to anyone else who's had, like, significant time there. I mean, he was Kevin Sheedy's right-hand man from the beginning and was clearly the one who was going to succeed him all along. But you could tell, it's like, he seemed like a really neat person who was easy to get along with, and his players all had very good relationships with. Then the rematch, I remember watching round 19 from Oregon, and it was a 36-point win for Carlton, and what I remember about this game is two great marks, one for each team. Toby Green had one that was a mark of the year finalist, and then Adam Saad rivaled him. Woof. Green's was definitely the better of the two, but both were really nice. Thinking about these teams' records thus far, I did expect each team to come in at one win each. I just didn't expect GWS's win to be against Adelaide. Yeah, it's funny because I think we were higher on the Crows coming into the season. And I think that was just like, you got to pick someone to improve from the prior year, and they seemed like a decent candidate. Not that there was anyone that we thought would make a huge jump. No, this is one year where, you know, the classic two teams from finals change. I'm not sure if it's going to apply this year. Carlton and Port seem like clear candidates to make it still true. As this is the midday Saturday game, 
It's a 4.35 p.m. local bounce at the showground, 1.35 a.m. Eastern as April Fool's Day begins here in America, 10.35 p.m. Pacific on Friday the 31st. So pranks should be in order by then. I've got a fun, stupid April Fool's thing planned for once. I don't usually, but I actually have something decent. Don't spoil it. This will be a Fox Soccer Plus game, by the way. For GWS, Jacob Ware has just been everyone's enemy lately, and now he's out 8-10 to 10 weeks for the broken scapula, so I guess people got what they wanted. Well, it means he won't be caught with another ridiculous bump this round. They should be getting Kelly and Lockie Whitfield back for concussion this week. Uh, Phil Davis could be playing VFL this week, which is pretty cool, just because he would give them something defensively that's lacking. Sam Taylor needs somebody else strong to play alongside him, and with Harry Himmelberg spending more time forward, Davis is the best guy on the list for it if he's healthy. The problem is he just has so rarely been healthy these past couple years. Darcy Jones could also return via the VFL. Darcy not burn, just Jones. Clear nickname there. Could see a couple debuts. Yeah, 2021 pick number 42, Josh Fahey, has been playing well in the VFL. And then Aaron Cadman, you know, he was the number one pick last year. Jake Riccardi hasn't done a shit so far this year. Honestly, you know, if I was the Giants, and I know this is stupid, but I would feel more pressured to play Aaron Cadman just off of how good Matthias Filippo and Harry Schiesel have looked, which I know is stupid. I mean... Especially because this was not considered to be a super deep draft class. You saw a, a lot of the talk around the trade period was teams trying to stockpile picks for next year. But Riccardi had been playing because of his ability to have some spots in the ruck. But if he hasn't been doing shit at forward and Cadman's been doing well enough in the VFL so far, give the dude a shot on that alone. And not solely because he was the number one pick. Play Jason Gilby. Now that's something we endorse just because of who he is. I will drink a stupid amount of milk when he debuts. Milk shoey? Oh, God, the shoe would smell really bad after. Maybe like a shoe you're about to throw out? But that, uh, it's tempting, but there's going to be a lot of milk when that time comes. It will be a good choice then. But again, I know it's stupid to think like, oh, yeah, we should debut this guy just because he's other guys. But at the same time, you picked him ahead of them, so you'd hope he'd be on that similar timetable or maybe even ahead of them. Different needs for different teams, I guess. But yeah, I was surprised to see Catman have to wait his time thus far. You don't expect that out of a number one pick in any sport, really. For Carlton, they're looking to get Carlton are looking to get George Hewitt and Jack Martin back this week. Hewitt missed last round with a hand injury. Martin has had a calf complaint for a bit. Looking elsewhere on the list, Riley Beveridge on the In The Mix article says that Michael Voss is contemplating playing both Mark Pitnett and Tom DeConing. So is this a case where you play them both and then sub out the less effective one to get energy from a guy like Lockie O'Brien in for the fourth quarter? I mean, if the demands of the match call for it, the thing is, I don't know if you need that matchup-wise against GWS, but... If Steven Canelio, if Canelio, Kelly, and Whitfield are on like they were in round one when Canelio and his eyebrow were just otherworldly in the second half and before Kelly and Whitfield got concussed, then I can see how it's necessary. I will say this, unlike a lot of teams, having multiple Ruckman in for Carlton might mean you still are actually playing like your best 22. 
because decoding and PithNet are actually both pretty skilled, not just in the center circle, but at least in decoding's case, able to use his size in other areas as well. Probably means it would be a, it'll be more difficult for Lockie Plowman or Patty Dow to come into the side. But if that is the best, but if both those rucks are in the best 22, yeah, play them. Blues are favored by nine and a half, which seems a bit low. They haven't put up crazy, they haven't been a super high scoring team thus far. So maybe that factors into things. Let's see what's the weather going to be like. See if that factored. It could be some showers, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be, you know, insanely hot or anything. I may just hammer that Carlton line. That actually seems like a pretty easy line to take. I'm, unless there's something I'm completely missing here, I'm actually going to go and put some money on that. The rematch, which Carlton hosts, will be the final round of the season, round 24 at Marvel Stadium. It still looks weird seeing round 24. That's going to take a lot of getting used to. That may take more getting used to than Heritage Bank Stadium. Hey, there's a match there later this round. All right, normally we do intro, four games, break, five games, but because these last few games have so much intrigue, we're going to do one more before the break. Also, because both of our teams are involved in those last four games. But this is the game that I'm calling the Will the Bubble Burst Bowl because they can't both be 3-0. They can both exit undefeated if we're able to sing the song again. You know what's funny? I was so locked into the end of the Frio North game that I forgot about that possibility. Like, I knew that there was a possibility of a draw, but I wasn't thinking, oh shit, if there's a draw, we get to sing the song. So I will try to keep that in mind if that is a possibility at all this round. But um, yeah, St. Kilda facing Essendon at the G. St. Kilda's sesquicentennial game. Sesquicentennial, my favorite 16-letter word. Yeah, that's their 150th anniversary where they get to celebrate their flag. Singular. As I said a few episodes ago, too bad they don't get like half of a crudely cut Premiership Cup for the 2010 Grand Final tie. Which I think would actually be really funny. I mean, I'm sure if you're a Saints fan, like, it feels shitty and it's hard to laugh about. But you should be able to have some level of fun with it. You know, like that biblical story about cutting a baby in half. Same type of deal here. Now, last year, Essendon had a big anniversary game at the G. Played like shit. Got killed by Carlton. That was a Friday night game. Then the following Friday, they played the Saints at Marvel for Spud's game. And the Saints didn't bother showing up. And Essendon beat them by 35. That was their only meeting last year. And this is their only meeting this year, which... Seems weird. These seems like teams you'd expect to get matched up with each other more, no? Yeah, they do seem like a more logical matchup. Maybe because they both kind of had similar suffering in our time watching the game that we considered them teams that you could pair up easily. I'm sure if you look at it beyond the lens of, like, this decade, it's really hard to compare them. I mean, 16 flags to one kind of says it on its own. I find it interesting that this is the game that they're putting on Fox Sports 2 rather than the other game that's starting five minutes later. But this is a 7.25 p.m. start, so Saturday night at the G. It's 4.25 a.m. Eastern, 1.25 a.m. Pacific for American viewers on the 1st of April. I will say this. 
I think this one does have a slightly better chance of being a closer game. Probably more than slightly better, actually. I did think that when I saw the schedule, I just didn't think we'd get this sort of bubble bursting thing going on here. We did not expect these teams to enter at a combined 4-0. You would have expected... Expecting 0-4 would have been a lot more reasonable. I would have guessed probably 1-3. I would have guessed Essendon to beat Hawthorne. And I mean, Essendon's 2-0 is the far less surprising, considering they didn't win back-to-back games against finalists to open this season. And finalists, that's a, that's a lot of consonants. But yeah, you got a, an Essendon team that's put up some big offensive numbers the first two weeks against the Saints team that's played great defense. Although, again, they have benefited from some poor opposing kicking. There are some Saints fans that will tell you that that just evens out some of the free kicks that have been awarded against them. I find it very Saints-like that they're going to be without their captain for this game. Yeah, which just, I mean, it sucks. Jack Steele is going to be out four to six weeks, broken clavicle. You mean he couldn't play through it for a full game? That he played through it for a quarter, as we mentioned in our round two recap, is insane. Especially when you consider that the game was in the bag. I don't know what they shot him up with, or if he's just completely insane, but it's pretty cool. If his adrenaline was just that high, that's insane. So Callum Wilkie stands in as your on-field captain. This could be a bit of a different-looking Saints team, depending on the health of Jack Bytel, who I really liked in round one. He's questionable as of now, based off of his knee. Jimmy Webster's hand situation, he's trending more towards doubtful, but I'd expect Marcus Windhager gets elevated from the sub role this week, and maybe he gets used as a tag, although I don't know who on Essendon really screams, you know, oh, you gotta tag this guy. Zach Merritt or Darcy Parrish. Actually, difficult to distinguish between the two of them, which you'd rather tag, because both were really strong last week, Parrish with a functional high stat game. Shit, you could also consider Will Setterfield, Dylan Scheel, maybe even Andrew McGrath. I I don't think you'd tag a half back, but McGrath has looked really smooth since he was moved back there full time. I'm glad that Brad Scott has stuck with that because I think that's one of the smarter things that Ben Rutten and his staff did. Yeah, it was one of those, like, you've got so many good players forward and so few back that it's like, find which one you can move back, and they ended up settling on McGrath for that, which seems to have been the right move. Could also look at a debut for former Category B rookie Jack Paris, or he could have Tom Highmore being elevated from the VFL. I'm just going to keep thinking about, you know, the, the Windhager tag, because, I mean, at this point, I would say Parrish seems the most logical, but I would love to get some Saints and Bombers fans' opinions on it. I wouldn't honestly start without him tagging someone and then have him gravitate towards someone based on how the game flows. That said, I don't know if there's more preparation that goes into it where, you know, you really spend a couple days studying what a specific player does. So instead you break that into like, you know, kind of spending a little bit less time on individual players or like split up that time you would spend on one guy to, you know, half merit, half parish. I'm not sure how that would work. That's something we've yet to learn is, you know, how taggers really spend their time practicing. That's something I'd, I'd love to get insight from, from an actual player. I mean, you're not going to have Windhager tag Jake Strayer, are you? That seems really unlikely. He is available after a good VFL showing. Yeah, um, a lot of guys have been working their way back in the VFL. Nick Hind didn't play the first couple rounds. He looks to be in good form now. 
Not dead. Ben Hobbs also has done well for the reserves. Patrick, no relation to Michael Voss, could be considered for a debut. I don't think this is a spot for a debut just because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. At the same time, Dyson Hebel has looked a step slow, if not multiple steps slow, in both games that has been subbed out both times. And at this point, I'm wondering if it's worth it to keep him in the main 22. What would hurt them is, like, say you can't use the sub on him because someone gets hurt in the first half or whatever, and seeing his progression in the fourth quarter would be a really interesting thing to follow. So if that happens, whether it's in this game or at some point this year, because inevitably someone is going to get hurt and need to be subbed out at some point, that's football. I'd make sure to follow what he individually looks like then. Sam Wiedemann was a late out last week with a toe injury. I think he's more likely to play here in round three. Brandon Zirk Thatcher is more questionable, having maybe sprained his ankle. Kane Baldwin seems like a likely defensive in if Zirk Thatcher can't play. Zirk Thatcher has been one of the more stable actual defenders in the back from the latter part of last season into these first couple rounds of 2023. He made a couple of badass hustle plays last week. Had the fingertip five-point play where he stopped an Alex Sexton kick from being a goal. And I think that was the play that really ended up cementing the game, being in Essendon's favor in the fourth quarter. Personally, and this is just because of his name, I would rather see Alistair Lord get in than Baldwin, especially considering Lord is actually a defender, just because I think his name is really cool. It would also be really neat if you were able to get Tex Wanganin into this game against Naziah Wanganin Millera, but he hasn't really been mentioned in any of this. Through all this, he got St. Kilda favored by 10 and a half. I don't know how to read this line at all. And because of that, I'm just going to say, I think this line's too high. I'm honestly leaning a bit towards Essendon here, which probably sounds crazy, but... Like, not just to cover, but to win. I think it would be, like, so fitting, you know, St. Kilda's anniversary game and, like, they lose in heartbreaking fashion or something. Massimo D'Ambrosio after the siren? Better idea. Irving Mosquito comes out of retirement and scores after the siren to win the game. Like, the most Saints thing would be Patty Ryder coming out of retirement and scoring after the siren for the Bottoms. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> that would be fucking... Awesome. Especially because Ryder's on the Essendon payroll. They could probably fucking make it work. I would want it to have like full on like WWE style entrance music for his return too. There are so many ways that this could happen against the scene. And it's also very possible they just win with really good defense. This is going to be my game to cover. And I didn't expect to be this eager to watch it as I already am. Still three days out. You've got the best defensive team so far against the second best offense so far. And youth on both ends, particularly for the Saints. I was really high on Anthony Caminiti and Matthias Filippo has more than proven his worth thus far. Lest you forget, you can find us on Twitter and YouTube at Americans Footy. You can find me personally at BenjaminHK01. You find me at Castle Media, and you can find Brian Harambe sitting right next to me, and also on Instagram at Kath Named Brian. 
He needs to do more footy picks himself. But what if we had Grya do some sort of tipping contest as well? Ooh, gotta figure out a way to do that for like nine games a week. It would be tough, but I feel like the way this season ha has gone, he would probably be more accurate than us right now. Yeah, um, personally, so far, well, if you count the tie as a win, which I don't, but the AFL official tipping competition does, I uh, nine and nine, I would just kind of count it as a no contest. I believe I'm also nine and nine. Yep, because I got all of Sunday correct last round. I think our tip is going to be pretty clear for this next game, the last of the games to start on Saturday. There are two that are going to be starting five minutes apart, and this one is Showdown 53, and the bars are going to be back. The bars are back. The bars are back. The bars are back. And I already sang this. There we go. Yeah, we did that when it was announced ahead of round one. It might have been in our round one preview that we talked about the bars being back. Look, I don't think there's anything wrong with having uniforms that look like some other teams unless it's when you're playing them. I just, personally, I wouldn't want my normal identity to look too much like another team. Like, I guess it won't be as much of an issue this year, but like for a lot of years, you know, the Minnesota Twins would look way too much like the Atlanta Braves. I think it's good that Port Adelaide have their own identity, but I also think it's good for them to be able to incorporate the prison bars. I've realized no AFL team really incorporates like a modern sort of like, you know, a striping design along the side of the uniform, which I think that would be an opportunity to do something with it, although it might end up looking more like piano keys. I mean, some people already use piano keys as a representation of the prison bars on Twitter. Oh, yeah. So that. That would work, but um, Showdown 53, like we said, five minutes after the Saints and Bombers get underway, so in Adelaide, 7 p.m. on the dot, in Victoria and the other eastern states, or I guess not Queensland, because they're on their own weird time, but Victoria, New South Wales, Tasmania. Yeah, that's at 7.30. For those of us in the U.S., 1.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 4.30 a.m. on the East Coast, Nobody really lives in the mountain time zone percentage-wise. You can figure it out, though, if that applies to you. The mountain time zone has a lot of cool shit, by the way, just not a lot of people. Unfortunate also that this will be a Fox Soccer Plus game. There were a couple times last year where you had both of the Saturday games going against each other on Fox Sports 1 and Fox Sports 2. I've been hoping for that for this week, but alas, that's not the case. It's amazing how even Showdown has been throughout its history. I mean, each team's had their streaks, but Port just lead 27 to 25 as of this point. They have won four of the last five to help them get that margin, and they've also won four of their last five home showdowns. Especially since we started watching in 2020, being the home team has somewhat mattered. Yeah, it really does seem to affect things, which seems bizarre. I don't know if... Is it the crowd? I mean, it would you'd have to think it would be something with the crowd. Now, is there like a different, like a, what used to be called Staples Center type situation or like SoFi or MetLife where it's like the permanent tenants each have, you know, their own home locker room? Because I mean, it would suck if like you're playing at your own venue, but you're stuck in a shitty locker room I think, because you're technically not the home team. I think that there's just a home locker room and an away locker room. That's how it is at the G. I think there's got to be more than just one or two or else the gather round is gonna be a bitch 
yeah, maybe there's maybe there's three or four. It would make sense for the power of the crows to each have their own. But I guess the crows would, I mean, would the crows get some sort of primacy because they were the first team to enter the AFL? Because, I mean, they both moved to the Adelaide Oval together, though Port did play one home game there before the move was made. I'm not sure how it works. I guess we got to look into that. Port enter at 1-1, one and one, having flattened Brisbane and then getting flattened themselves at Collingwood. Adelaide enter at 0-2 after having clear opportunities in both games and not being accurate enough in front of goal. I mean, that only tells half the story. That's what happened when they were playing well, but they also had stretches where they were just terrible and offered no resistance defensively, especially last week. It seemed like Max Michelini and maybe Patrick Parnell were the only ones that could do anything defensively, and Parnell's been concussed pretty badly. He's also just too small. I mean, Michelini isn't particularly big either, but they were undersized in defense in general last week. They need a big defender to be good. Wow, it's almost like they could have used Jordan Butts in the lineup. His omission continues to baffle me, especially against Richmond with the talls that they have. I'd expect he'll be in this week because of how much it backfired last time and that you're going to have to have someone to go up against Charlie Dixon and maybe a bigger body like Scott Lysette or Jeremy Finlayson sometimes as well. Todd Marshall's also pretty tall. Likey, but tall. You know, to match up with Marshall, it's like, you know, do you choose to match up with, you know, kind of a big all-around guy or trying to go tall and skinny to match his body type, or do you go with, like, a shorter, stockier type that's just kind of going to push him around and give up some height? That's where Charlie Dixon being in good form, good health, really throws a wrench into any team's defensive plan right now in facing Port, especially if they don't have, you know, a, a wealth of talls, and the Crows certainly don't. should also note that Wayne Miller should factor into selection after being a laid out last week with an adductor injury. I'd put him more on the likely end of the injury spectrum right now. We don't know yet about Darcy Fogarty or Matt Crouch. Fogarty seems to be the less likely of the two. He wasn't running Wednesday, I know. And we're recording early Wednesday morning U.S., so late Wednesday night in Australia. In the Sandful, they haven't started home and away yet, but... Lachlan Galan had six goals at a practice match, so they clearly look to him if they need a forward, or maybe Riley Philthorpe will get into the main 22. He was a weird pick for a sub last week. I mean, I guess you could have put him in different spots, but... but he doesn't have that sort of multifaceted game that could allow him to slide back more easily in defense. If there's a tall forward who has that, it would be more of Elliot Hillberg, I guess. Defensively, with Parnell being out, you could see Chase Jones or Will Hamill factor into things. 2021 pick number 44, Zach Taylor, might be debuting soon. I just don't see it happening in a showdown. His versatility could make him a little better in the selector's eyes, but there's something about this matchup where I don't see it happening. I mean, I don't think he's a very good coach. I think Joe Burrow's talent largely carries him. Oh, they spell Zach the same way. But... Yeah. I was just thinking more about the dead president. I feel like we made a reference to him at some point before. I don't know. I made a reference to some president at one point. I think it was him. I'm not sure if it was because of draft stuff or... Imagine being replaced by a guy named Millard. Yeah, that would that would kind of suck. Um, I guess I'll give Port Adelaide's injury stuff. Well, Ryan Burton's going to be out because 
he had that tackle on Jamie Elliott that's going to cost him two games. So options to replace him include Tom Clary, Riley Bonner. What's a Bonner? Or possibly Jake Passini, who is the eighth pick of the 2020 rookie draft that still hasn't debuted. Also, Travis Boak could go into the 22. Was he the sub? Mm-hmm. And Jackson Mead did well in the Sandfolk. Yeah, the Sandfolk can now be streamed through the AFL website. They just added the Sandfolk. Awesome that they've completed things now because they had the VFL and the Waffle, but now you can catch all the AFL Reserves teams, at least, for free through the league website. Jackson Mead reminded me of Curtis Mead, who is also from Adelaide, except he's not playing footy. Curtis Mead is one of the Tampa Bay Rays top prospects. Don't tell me there's a relation. I don't think there is, from what I can tell, but he is actually from Adelaide. The only thing I could find about his parents is that his family, he had baseball ties in his family, doesn't say anything about footy, but... I I mean that they're probably not related because Jackson Mead was a father-son pick. Maybe there's some sort of distant relation, which would be super cool. But Mead is currently listed as the number 33 overall prospect by MLB.com and number two within the Tampa Bay Rays system, who, for those of you that don't know baseball, they're always considered a really smart organization. So I imagine you'll see him within the first couple months. He was acquired in a trade with the Phillies very early in his minor league career, like for kind of a nobody. And it seems to work really well for the Rays to this point. There's also one other big Australian baseball prospect that had been mentioned. Is it some of the World Baseball Classic? Uh Aha, Travis Bazana, or Bazana, who was not playing in the World Baseball Classic because he plays for Oregon State, who doesn't appear to be having a great season. But for the past couple decades, they've been one of the steadiest programs in college baseball. And I believe they have a College World Series or two to their name. So yeah, maybe we'll have another wave of um, Australian major leaguers soon. Yeah, Oregon State's only three and six in Pac-12 play so far. They got swept by Stanford. They did take two out of three from Cal, all close games. This probably doesn't mean much to a lot of you guys, but being on the West Coast especially and having graduated from Cal, I'm pretty in tune with Pac-12 baseball. Hey, I was looking at Bazana's stats and they're fucking insane. Okay, what are his slashes? Uh, he's OPSing, so on base plus slugging. Like, 750 is decent, 800 is pretty good. I know th- the balls are juiced in college this year like crazy, but he's at 1039. He's got 23 walks and 23 strikeouts. In how many games is this? 24. Oh, wow. And he's got 10 doubles, only one homer, but 10 doubles and two triples. So, like, this guy could be. Big time, and not just, you know, to go through the international signing process, but could actually be like a draft. Yeah, so uh, I'll watch out for this guy. Getting back to the footy, though, I liked a lot of what Burton did in round one. There were a few boneheaded things that he did round two, including but not limited to that dangerous tackle of Jamie Elliott. But, I mean, Port don't really have that clear number one tall defender. Clurry's the tallest option that really makes sense there. And I didn't like a lot of Botter last year. I was calling for his omission for a decent chunk of the season, and we eventually got that. But whoever it is, not just for this round, but also 
next time out against the Swans will have a pretty tough task on their hands. And I think you're also going to need to see a lot more activity from Tom Jonas against the Swans last year in particular. I noted his spoiling abilities and he'll probably need to step up like that again. I mean, I think he's already done enough. You know, what's new Pussycat was such an influential song. So was it's not unusual. Are you going to the jukebox? No, I, I wasn't even thinking of like the the John Mulaney routine. I was just making a joke because his name is similar. I mean, you could call him Tom Pussycat Jonas. Huh, I'll consider it. Porter favored by 16 and a half. I get it. I expect them to win their home version of Showdown by a lot pretty much every time. The line makes sense based on Port being up and down thus far and kind of being in that middle of possible outcomes. I don't see a Crows win for a Port home showdown, but I could see it being tight. I just want to be entertained all the way through. We certainly had that last year in this round. Um, you slept through that. I think that's why you wanted to take showdown this year in round three. Yeah, and just at the time when we were splitting them up, it was like, eh, Saints Bombers. Yeah, last year it was that weird Friday overlap thing. I think it was Melbourne and Essendon? Uh, yeah, it was. So that Melbourne-Essendon game started like an hour earlier, and I ended up sleeping through the last, like, I don't know, seven, eight minutes of that showdown, which was a mistake. I text, I was texting you throughout. I wasn't spoiling anything, but I realized pretty much as Murphy was getting tackled high, oh shit, Ethan's missing this. I was also exhausted. I was in Arizona at the time. I'm not in Arizona this time. You also weren't in Arizona in round 23 when Port slightly more than doubled up Adelaide in the home showdown because, again, the home team matters. 89% of chips are on Port Adelaide, and considering that there's another game at 89, Collingwood, and then Carlton at 92, and a game we're just about to talk about at 95, I'm, I'm surprised it's not higher than 89, honestly. Is that 95 for... Geelong winning on the Gold Coast. Yeah, it seems a little higher than it should be, but I feel like, you know, obviously this is this is a game they can't lose, and this is our transition. So the Caps are making their first visit to Gold Coast under the new name of Heritage Bank Stadium, even though they played there not that many games ago when it was still Metricon. Round 22 of last year, they came out of there with a clean 60-point win. I knew you were going to say clean when it came to 60. I'm not sure how. Cats have won six in a row overall, but are 0-2 for the first time since 2015. They are coming off back-to-back -back losses for the first time since 2021, round 23 in the qualifying final. And their first time losing back-to-back -back games in the home and away season since, I can't believe this, 2018 rounds 20 and 21. The Cats had two two-game losing streaks in 2018. Both of them involved Hawthorne. I'm just going to go and say it right now. I can't see that happening this year. I can't see Hawthorne factoring into a losing streak this year for the Cats. Firstly, they only play once. And secondly, I mean, the skill gap is evident. The concern is health for this game. So Jeremy Cameron is dealing with a rib injury. His wife maybe still hasn't given birth. Hopefully soon he'll get to hear Zepitapata of tiny feet. This is something that Ethan started a couple years ago, I think. Yeah, basically, it's like a weird 
improv character type thing, even though I've never been to an improv class. Improv. But it's a basically a creepy old German doctor, kind of based off of Dr. Calgary from American Dad. But he always talks about, you know, telling a woman she's pregnant and that soon she'll be hearing the pitta-patta of tiny feet. But yeah, his health is a concern. Reese Stanley was subbed out late last week with a rib injury. Not that he was playing very well even before that. So I would be totally fine with John Seglar taking his place or just letting Mark Blitzov do all the rock stuff. But I think you go with Seglar because he can match up with Jared Witts. I feel like you do need to have a true Ruckman to handle Witts, who actually showed off some skill outside of the center circle last week. And there's a chance Mitch Duncan could get in, which would be huge. I think 2021, which I feel like this team is more akin to the 2021 team than the last year's, you realize just how much they needed Duncan. Also could be another big lift defensively if Jake Kolajashmi gets in. He was concussed during the preseason, and I'm a little surprised he didn't get in last week, but it would be good to have him in. From the VFL, looks like Brennan Parfit played really well after being omitted because he sucked in the sub role in round one. And Sam Simpson and Ali Bedempsey are going to be in discussion as well. So I just learned through watching the Brian Myers interview with the Oop Show that when Ryan was injured a couple years ago, they had him working with the coaches and scouting and reviewing footage. And I believe Dempsey was the one that he was in on, where I think they kind of had him look at it to see, like, you know, what do you, th- you know, do you think he'd fit with our system? So I'm more intrigued just off of that. Unfortunately, I don't think he has anywhere near as unique of a kicking style. They did talk about that in the interview as well, but um, how do you not? I'm trying to think of this game from the standpoint of what if Cameron doesn't play? And in terms of actual goal kicking, Ollie Henry's pretty accurate. It's just a matter of can he free himself up because there's still much more to Jeremy Cameron than just he kicked goal. He's able to free himself up, get himself open, a full field player. Last week, he actually also just turned out to be good defensively and kind of did everything. I think that's the other reason why you'd put in Seglar if Stanley isn't 100% and maybe just put him in anyway alongside Blitzovs is Blitzovs being a full field player could help make up for Cameron's absence if necessary. Not that you want Blitzovs kicking for goal, but he can do just about everything else so well. Exactly, and, he, and he's a decent field kick, not a goal kick. The other thing you can do is try to incorporate Tyson Stengel more. That's what I think is going to be necessary. And I think that's probably necessary either way. Just you need to get him involved because he's good and you need to take advantage of your weapons. And like I said from last week, Brad Close needs to be more involved, probably needs to play a bit further back, kind of be that guy that connects the midfield to the forwards. And also Max Holmes needs to actually get back on the wing because it was Ryan Myers who was taking up a bit more of that space last at, last time out. Tanner Brune as well, who should probably be playing more towards the middle. I'm also thinking it's not impossible. You know, it's unlikely this early in the season, but if they wanted to just, like, manage Zach Tui or maybe Gary Rowan. I'm an advocate for managing Tui after his poor performance last week. I'm thinking too, but I'm not sure if his head's right still. I also think it's something that you do when you have more guys healthy, but... I think a list surprise or two, such as Dempsey or maybe even Shannon Neal, wouldn't be the most shocking thing in the world. This game kind of screams late Chris Scott change. 
This also seems like a game that should work in Geelong's favor because they've shown they can win games where they get totally outclassed in the midfield so long as they're way better in both 50s. And in this game, I think they can do that as much as the Suns do have their share of forward weapons. But I'm not sure if they're going to be able to stop Geelong on the defensive end. Even though Charlie Ballard will play, somehow his one game suspension for striking Matt Guelphie was reduced to a fine and that elbow he gave him was deemed not intentional? How did the Tribunal bottle this one? I don't know. It's not like there's a Victorian bias in play here or anything, so I I have no explanation. If anything, the Victorian bias would incline them to suspend Ballard for two games, but that probably means that Caleb Graham won't make it back in, and we've set our piece on Caleb Graham. From the VFL, Sean Lemons and Will Powell were going all right, Powell coming back from a hamstring injury, a pretty severe one at that. There was just that rash of injuries that the Suns suffered. Just kind of bang, bang, bang toward the middle of the season with him in the middle of Lockie Weller and Connor Butterick. Which was like the really bad looking one on TV? Was it Powell? I believe it was Powell. Yeah. Also, the number six pick from last year's draft, Bailey Humphrey, is on debut watch. They've already had one debutante this year in Bodie Uland. And Humphrey, mid-forward, seems to be in line for the second one. Just not sure how much of a spot there is for him at this time and and who might be the one to make way. Also, what about a Mac Andrew suspension is over? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Mac Andrew. I would imagine he gets reintroduced from the VFL, but uh, it makes way too much sense, especially because this is right at the start of the season, and I don't think he was allowed to be in a decent amount of team activities during the offseason. That said, I just love watching him, so more Mac Andrew is good. I hope they don't bring in Caleb Graham until next week because I think he would make them a lot better, and I don't want them to be a lot better until next week. You probably also hope Jack Lacocious continues to not put up much defensive effort. Yeah, that would be that would be really nice. I really hope this is an angry win where, you know, they just they just take out their frustration with a huge margin. And not just that. So the angry win means two things. It means you're angry, and it means you have the talent to just throw a team around when you feel like it every now and then. Now, it's hard to have an angry win against a really good team, but against a mid-tier or lower-tier team, the best teams are able to do that. And if that's what happens this week, my confidence will go up significantly. What do you think of the 16.5-point line in Geelong's favor? I think with the injury news, if Cameron doesn't play, I would bring it down a good four or five points. If he's in, though, probably still make it a couple points smaller, but I think that's fair. I mean, there's a world in which they lose this game. There's a world in which they lose this game by a lot, considering the injuries. I just think they're the less likely scenarios. But I wouldn't rule anything out. I am not, like, counting this as a win by any means. Don't think we ever gave the time for this one. It's going to be a 2.10 p.m. Eastern start in Australia, and that's 2.10 p.m. across the Pacific seaboard because daylight time ends at 2 a.m. on April 2nd. So Cleveland's going to get back in line with things that will actually be a half hour ahead of South Australia again. So it'll be a 12.10 a.m. Eastern start Sunday, April 2nd, 9.10 p.m. Pacific, April 1st. It'll be a Fox Soccer Plus broadcast, but on Fox Sports 1... Starting 70 minutes after that, you've got the marquee Sunday matchup, and I'm glad it's got that middle Sunday slot, although I honestly think this ought to have been 
one of the weeknight games. Yeah, or maybe the middle of Saturday game where it has its own time slot. Well, the problem is, I mean, I would have had St. Kilda and Essendon in that middle slot, maybe, if, if you really want to emphasize that 150th anniversary. And then Sydney having played Sunday certainly didn't help with making the round three fixture what it is. At the same time, Melbourne and Sydney screams out to me as a matchup that deserves the footy world's attention all to itself. You know, something I like about this game being on FS1 is that unlike Collingwood versus Carlton, where like people that don't know footy won't have a sense of the importance of that game. Like these are the teams with the two biggest cities in their name, which you would think like a casual with minimal knowledge of Australia would look at this and think, oh, this is important, even though they're not traditional rivals in any sense. I mean, maybe they were before 1982. But yeah, this is a game that should be able to draw the eye of the less informed observer. Whereas, like, you know, the first game we watched, Essendon and Fremantle, like, we had to look up where each team was. And it took us, like, or at least it took me until late in the game to actually remember, okay, Fremantle is from Perth, Essendon is from Melbourne. Whereas this, like, you can't mince words here. You know where Melbourne and Sydney are. You know where they're from. Now, they could always take the Angels approach, where they play in a different city than what they say they are, or they could call themselves, you know, the um, the Sydney Swans of Moore Park. I think Moore Park is technically where the SCG is, or, you know, the, I mean, I guess a more accurate one would be, like, the Melbourne Cats of Geelong, if we're just looking at, like, distance and association stuff. I had an adverse reaction to hearing that in my body. You should. How did they put up with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim? And how are they tolerant of the fact that the Los Angeles Angels are still called that? Anaheim Angels was perfectly fine. They won a World Series under that name. If anything, that's a sign that it needs to stick. I don't know if this is going to get a great crowd, sadly, because the D's don't have the huge memberships of the big four. I think it'll be in the 40, 50,000 range. If it's higher than like 53, I'd be surprised. I mean, that just seems disappointing, though, based on the stature of the games that these teams played last year in particular and how both of them are positioned for this season. I'm going to say like maximum possible attendance, 55. I hope I'm wrong. I hope it gets into the 60s or better. I don't see it, though. A couple really fun meetings last year. Both of them were at the MCG. Both of them were Swans wins. In round 12, it was a 12-point win for Sydney. Stephen May was concussed for that game, and Adam Tomlinson was totally outdone by Sam Reed in the first half. Reed had three goals before the halftime siren, and then the Swans ended up scoring the last four goals to win. Errol Golden had the go-ahead goal, and then Tom Papley sealed it with one of his biggest celebrations of his career. Then in the second qualifying final, the Swans scored eight of the last 10 goals and held the D's goalless in the fourth to win by 22. Overall, Sydney have won four of the last five meetings between these two squads. Injury report for Melbourne. Well, you knew Max Gone was going to be out four to six weeks with a sprained MCL. That's only been reported by everybody. Do we need to show photos of him crying in the changing rooms again? I mean, he wasn't like crying. He was just looking sad. He actually did say he had a bit of a cry. It would be a great album cover, like him on that, him in that pose. Seems like a country album pose. Oh, I was thinking more like great 
Oh, yeah, I see that. You could have like a total views parody with that, I guess. Christian Salem is going to be out way longer than we thought. Turns out his meniscus is torn, so he may be out until the bye, but the aforementioned Stephen May, who was a late out last round, should be back. Probably squeezes out Tomlinson then. Debut for 2021 pick Jacob Van Royen. Something fresh in the forward group would be fun because we're so used to seeing them pretty much roll out the same stuff. And he had been talked about before Grundy came into things as someone who could support Gone as both a key forward and ruck. So this is a logical spot for him to come in. I think it would be more difficult for another defender to make it in alongside Stephen May, though Michael Hibbert is making it hard for him to be passed up with his recent performances. As for the Swans, Buddy Franklin's back from his one-game suspension, and you gotta figure out now who the hell makes way for him. I guess it would have to be Hayden McLean, because what would it be to take Joel Amarty out after his four goals or Logan McDonald after five? Especially when Amarty can also have some spot ruck rolls as well if he's healed up enough. He did get subbed out of the third quarter last week as part of his management plan. Other changes just seem unlikely as a result, so probably waiting on Angus Sheldrick among a few others. Should also note that Ryan Clark and Robbie Fox could play in the VFL this weekend as they rehab from their hamstring and calf injuries respectively. I'm really glad that we're getting this as a double up this year. Yeah, the other meeting will be in round 24 at the SCG. You could totally see that being vital for top two or top four at the end of things. What I really hope doesn't happen is one of those situations where they're just playing for home field, where it's like, you're going to be number two and number three, and it's just a matter of where. Because that just incentivizes teams to rest guys and kind of takes some of the edge out of it. Like, you know, you wonder if coaches hold anything back then, so... It's probably going to be Buddy's final home and away at the SCG. I can't imagine Sydney's could be one to particularly hold back. That's true. I guess that probably helps with it, honestly. The line on this caught me off guard. Uh, Melbourne favored by four and a half. Yeah, I would go with the Swans here. I would as well. Not by a ton, but I would say, you know, Swans by like eight. I wouldn't go that high. I'd say Swans by, you know, three, four, four and a half. You could talk me into Swans by as little as two and a half. I mean, in terms of the average of outcomes, yeah. In terms of what I actually expect, like a win of less than two goals for the Swans is what I expect out of this one. So you're kind of going to have your attention split at the start of the final game of the round. That is what you're, what's your forecast. Yup, it might be hard for me to focus on the start of Western Derby 56 if the D's and Swans remain close. Darby. You're just leaning toward the British pronunciation here? I was more saying it just to show that it's stupid, but... Our pronunciation does make more sense. Our spelling also makes more sense. We don't have random U's thrown around places. Maneuver doesn't look like a god-awful mess. You know why the British spell canceled with two L's and the Americans only spell it with one? Because they have to add the L they took in the Revolutionary War? Yeah, I mean, you could also go with you know, the L they were given in 1950. There, there's, there's a lot of occasions. I think I've said this about Western Derbies before. There needs to be more fire. Like, there was the one really bad punch a few years ago, but that was before our time. I mean, there was... Definitely a bit of banter. Just a bit of banter. In the second derby last year with Caleb Sarong having his jumper totally ripped and then giving up a 150-meter penalty. 
Yeah, it it felt more rivalry-ish, but still it wasn't like, you know, the end of the game or Final Siren were accompanied with a massive roar or a feeling of, of, you know, like, we finally beat these guys. Even when the Dockers edged the street against the Eagles in 21, it was like, you know, they were, ex- you know, their fans were excited, but it wasn't like, you know, this huge, oh my God, biggest rivalry win. I mean, it was a 15-point win. I remember it still was a pretty big reaction on the Siren. It still wasn't, like, you know, up there with some of the ones I've seen. Like, when I think of big rivalry wins, I mean, Dawson's after the Siren, you know, after the Siren, any time is kind of big. But I think of, like, Carlton and Collingwood both times. Or I think of GWS when they won the Sydney Derby at the SCG in 21. Like, that little section of... Giants fans going nuts on the go-ahead goal. Frio have won the last three Western Derbies, though they trail in the overall count by nine. And it'll be a 3.20 p.m. bounce, so 5.20 p.m. Eastern time for Australia. For Americans, 3.20 a.m. Eastern, 12.20 a.m. Pacific on Sunday the 2nd. This will be a Fox Soccer Plus broadcast. I'm so used to later in the year at... Optus that it was weird seeing like sunlight through halftime for the games there last week. What I'm used to is like very long shadows at the start of the game, and by second half, by the time they play the Kevin Parker stuff, it's like fully nighttime. And remember, they don't do daylight savings time in the West. I really hope this game is completely sold out. Haven't seen anything confirming that yet. Hopefully, we see that. And I also hope that the Eagles can put up more than 47 points because they put up 47 in both Western Derbies last year. In round three, they lost their home derby by 55. In round 22, they lost Frio's home derby by 24. And it should have been a hell of a lot more because the Dockers were their somewhat typical wasteful selves in front of goal kicking 9-17. You know, you could tell that even Dockers fans gave off the impression that they felt sorry for the Eagles because it's like, you know, you're the less successful team in the metro area. It's your own game. Your rivals suck. You're supposed to beat up on them and make their lives hell. And instead, it was just like, yeah, we won. Cool. I remember Sean Darcy won the Glendinning Allen medal with just a very good overall performance in that round 22 game. Just that high-level pest that he can be at his peak and... I see no reason why he shouldn't absolutely demolish Bailey J. Williams. Doesn't help that Nick Natanui's unlikely to play and has pretty much been ruled out already with his lingering Achilles tendon issues. Callum Jamison did something to his ankle in the waffle, so even less likely to see him. Elliot Glassbones and Paper Skin Yo is probably not going to feature. So who could we actually see? Well, awaiting word on Jai Cully's shoulder, the severity of the injury there. He listed as a test. Hopefully we finally see Brady Hoff debuting. He was managed following an illness in preseason and I am a huge Brady Hoff advocate. In the waffle, Greg Clark and Connor West have been overlooked so far. Clark was often the sub at the end of last year and I thought he deserved more shots in the 22. Between him, Jack Petrocelli and Xavier O'Neill, you've got three interesting options for the sub role. At the end of last year, O'Neill was one of the more effective boards at actually getting scoring chances, and Petrocelli is just fast. So it depends on what kind of dimension Adam Simpson wants. 
in the fourth quarter. And my question is, is it even going to matter? I think we're going to see really fucking angry Frio. That said, I don't particularly like what Frio's forwards have looked like so far, but I think this should be a good game for their small forwards because the style they play matches up well with not getting intercepted, considering how many handballs they typically use, and as long as they don't compromise that. I mean, they compromised it the first two rounds, was to say they don't do it a third time. Yeah, I think they get back to their roots for this game, and if they do, they'll be all right. They put themselves in the spot where, assuming they play the style that we really enjoyed last year, then all of a sudden, Tom Barris' intercept marks are far less likely because he's not getting the opportunity to intercept kicks, and he's going to have to be quick at intercepting handballs instead of getting up into marking contests. As for the injuries for the Dockers, Nap Fife is going to be tested this week. He has a plantar fascia injury. Remember, he looked really bad as a forward, but they seem committed to still playing him there, which doesn't quite click. I mean, I guess if you want him moving less, I'd rather see him rehabbing if movement is a concern. Here's a weird thing to consider. Does he, could you use him as a defender and just yeet Nathan Wilson? Well, considering what we've seen with other older midfielders being effective when they move further back, thinking especially of Scott Pendlebury in that case, but we've seen it with a few others in the past couple years. I thought five as halfback would have really made sense all along to have him running with guys like Jordan Clark and Nathan O'Driscoll on the wing if he gets in, and I hope he does. He should be available. Brandon Walker could also provide some run there if he slots in. Um, Michael Walters was great as a sub last week. He should be in the main 22. And Matt Taberner should just be left out. If you could get into a spot where Walters isn't necessarily in your best 22 and you just want him in that super sub role, that would be cool. But I don't think they have the health to do that right now. I think the solution, though, is just go small in the forward line and have Luke Jackson spend some more time up forward rather than Darcy. Nathan Schmuck, who is the kind of AFL.com expert for all things South and West, has listed Neil Erasmus, Sam Sturt, Josh Tracy, and 2021 draftee Matthew Johnson all as possibilities for this week. I like the idea of just throwing someone new in there the way these first couple weeks have gone. So I wouldn't mind seeing Johnson in there. Bring it. Especially for the Western Derby, I think going smaller for the most part in the forward line would help Rio just kind of get back to that handball and overlap heavy style that really worked last year. Though there could also be some questions about how stable that core back trio is for the Eagles with how shaky they were, especially at the start of last game. I mean, look, I'd be shocked if Frio lost this game. And I think it would be more of Frio actively losing the game than West Coast actively winning it. Which would be more surprising, a Frio loss or a Geelong loss? A Geelong loss if Jeremy Cameron is healthy. If Cameron is not healthy, that's a toss-up for me. Like, I think the way of expressing this is, like, those are the two least likely, we think, of the favorites to lose, followed by Carlton, and then followed by Port. I feel like those are the four that you feel the best about winning. You'd have Carlton and Port both above the lines. Yeah, and Collingwood, although I'm, I, I can get Collingwood. But yeah, I would put that well above the Lions. If this, now, if this game was at the Gabba, it would be a different story, but the Lions are playing 
in Melbourne, so that makes it less likely. But yeah, that's uh that those tiers make sense. Frio being favored by fourteen and a half also makes sense. Yeah, they just haven't shown enough to me to think, oh yeah, they're gonna, you know, score 110 to the point where they can really turn this game into a blowout. I think if they win lower scoring games that could do them well for their percentage, but it would take a great transformation for them to be putting up a huge margin. I can totally see them holding the Eagles in the 40s again. If they have 7-5-47 for the third straight Western Derby, I don't know how I react. What I would think it would be really cool, kind of like, you know, the Chris Davis 247 batting average. I might need to just create a 7-5-47 shirt at this point, Ed, Wear it with a mixture of pride and humiliation. If they score seven five forty seven and win, you have to get the shirt. If they score seven five forty seven and win, there is something seriously wrong with the universe, and you are getting that shirt. Oh, absolutely! I'd get enough to to send to some other Eagles fans too. I'd probably do a custom ink order. I just hope that this Western Derby is compelling all the way through, and I hope the same for Western Derby fifty seven, the Eagles home derby, which will be round twenty two. Now, we didn't do this last week, but, I mean, it ended up being pretty obvious. I'm not sure if it's going to be as obvious this time. We need to get back to doing our main character picks. I thought we didn't pick. Maybe we didn't. No. Well, you would know since you also are the one who edits these, so you have to listen to them again. Yeah. I'm going to go Kane Corns because he hasn't said anything super outlandish in a while. Showdown week, Kane Corns. I can totally see it happening. But since I claimed him, who's your pick? I got this weird feeling that Liam Shields is going to somehow tear things up in the Tasmanian tussle and really make Hawthorne and their fans aggravated. We could see some physicality in that one. I don't think it's going to be all just pleasantries in that one at the very least. Despite all the things that Clarkson did for the club on the Oval, I think there's going to be some clear resentment there. One last thing, sounding more like the Twilight Grand Final as possible, which... I do love the tradition of the daytime grand final and, you know, having the long shadows in the fourth quarter and through the medal ceremony was cool and all. But as someone who wants to be able to balance that with seeing a high school football game earlier in the night, I would be very unopposed. So I'd enjoy it. It does suck from the standpoint of like possible watch parties. And also just the fact that the overwhelming majority of Australian fans would prefer the afternoon. This is for the networks. This is for TV. It's because TV viewing numbers were down last year. That shouldn't be a reason to motivate change, but I guess that's just where the money comes from. In this case, it is about the money, not about the Mets. But love the Mets. It's about the Mets, baby. Love the Mets. All right, baby. Let's go get a home run, baby. Love the Mets. Let's go Mets. All right. That's going to pretty much do it for us. I'm Ethan Castle. You can find me on Twitter at Castle Media. I am Benjamin Castle at BenjaminHK01 individually on Twitter. Together, we are at Americans Footy on Twitter and on YouTube. The audio of this episode will be up there as well. It's just another platform on which you can stream. And I will be getting into creating some shorts and just shorter form videos on the channel as well. Talking about how we got into the game and just other oddities that I noticed. Also, Grian Harambe, the footy cat, is adorably sleeping on Ethan's bed right now. He seems to be pretty much out cold. And he is on Instagram at catnamedgrian. We'll talk with you, hopefully, throughout the week. If you're on Twitter, you can interact with us through that. And 
Send some replies in the Spotify polls as well. You know, we'll post a poll asking who you think the main character is going to be. And then we'll be talking to you again probably Monday or Tuesday with the round three recap.